much for having me here. Um, it's a real, real privilege actually to be here this morning um, and to share with you just a little bit of my story. I'll just share a little bit because it's actually quite a lot of it. Um, so I'll just give you a little bit. Um, as you can see, there are some boxes piling up on your stage back there, um, which is lovely. It's a site I'm very used to now. Um, I, I run a really small charity called uh, Samara's Age Appeal, which is a very original name. But um, it started originally, uh, nearly the, well, the very, very beginnings were nearly three years ago. Um, I've got two little children, Dominic is seven and Miles is four. And um, nearly three years ago, around Christmas time, I became aware that there were reports in the news of children uh, in refugee camps in Syria wearing flip-flops in the snow. And I don't know where I'd been living all my life, but I was shocked, I was utterly shocked to think that it was possible for that even to happen in this, this day and age, when we have an excess of so much here, um, I was just really heartbroken to think that it was possible that any mother should have to raise her children in a, a, a tent, for starters, um, as a home, um, and, you know, have nothing to give that child. Um, I think what it was that actually broke my heart most of all was just the realisation that actually we had allowed that to happen. I mean, when you think about what we have here, you know, the excesses, the spares that, that we have personally, uh, just as a nation, um, it really broke my heart. I think, you know, we're, we're all called to share, aren't we? We're called to share. You know, if we have two coats, give one to someone that doesn't have one. And that, that passage just kept playing on my mind again and again. And I had this big pile of baby clothes. I've been saving it for my, my sister. She was just about to have a baby. And I kept thinking, well, clearly these people need it so much more than she does. Um, but where do you even find a refugee? How do you find a refugee camp? I mean, I wouldn't even know where to start looking. Um, and I asked God, what, what do I do? I want to send them there, but you know, you ask us to share. I want to share, but how? Um, and about two days later, my mum showed me a blanket that she'd been knitting, and she said, it's for the Syrian refugee children. And I said, oh, that's amazing. Where, where are you sending them? I need the address. So anyway, I got in touch with um, this woman, and I started sending out little packages. They, because of the tax laws, um, we had to package up. Um, little parcels, or I had little parcels that were less than two kilos, and there was quite a lot of weighing involved and wrapping. And by the time I was doing the 14th or 15th parcel, I was sitting there thinking, I'm sure there must be a more cost-effective way of doing it and a more time-effective way. And this idea of a lorry kept bouncing around in my head, and I kept thinking, you know, we've got enough in this country to fill a lorry, haven't we? I mean, um, you know, where, how would I get it there? And um, the place I'd been sending the parcels couldn't receive a lorry. Um, and I tried one or two organisations, they all said, no, no, we don't do that sort of thing. And um, I just felt a bit disheartened and I said to God, you know, there must be a way of doing this, but I, I don't know where to start. Can you show me which organisation I need to speak to? Who do I need to contact? And he said, start collecting. And to be honest with you, I didn't because I'm a bit of a control freak. I like to know the details, I like to have everything planned out. And you know, we were talking about being rather out of my comfort zone, so I left it for a couple of months. Um, and they came back to me again really suddenly in March of 2014. I just suddenly started thinking, hey, these people, you know, they're going to be freezing to death this winter. What well, I need to do something. Um, so I started looking into it again, started contacting charities, and they all said, no, 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 we don't do that sort of thing. Um, I felt frustrated, and I said to God, you know, there must surely be a way of doing this. You know, can you just show me which, which, which charity do I need to contact? Which door do I need to knock on? What do I need to do to make this happen? And he said, stop collecting. And um, I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm a little bit slow to catch on and I have to be asked a few times to do something. And 
I should. I spoke to one or two mums at school. Some of them, to be honest, embraced it with a little bit more enthusiasm than I felt at the time because, um, you know, I was out of my comfort zone. Um, I collected a couple of bags, I put them in the spare room and ended up closing the door because I didn't know what to do with them. And, you know, every now and then I'd go in there to do some ironing and see them and think, oh, what am I going to do with those bags? Anyway, a few more months passed and then in the summer of 2014, um, ISIS started taking towns and cities in northern Iraq. Uh, that was when they took the city of Mosul that the Iraqi government is currently trying to uh, fight to get back now from ISIS. It's the um, Iraqi stronghold for ISIS, a bit like Al Raqqa in Syria. Um, anyway, there were a lot of people being displaced um, and uh, over the space of a few weeks, these people were just massively on my heart and mind and I couldn't stop thinking about them. I was seeing what was happening to our Christian brothers and sisters there, people being beheaded, I mean, really hideous things happening. And, um, you know, people were fleeing by the hundreds of thousands and they were having nowhere to go, people sheltering in car parks and all sorts of places there, you know, the schools and the churches have just overrun with displaced people and there was no bedding, there were no pillows, there were no clothes, there was no nothing. And um, I kept looking at these people and just thinking, wow, you know, if that was me, that, that, that would be me if I was there, you know, that would be my family if I was there, that would be my child. And um, I just, I, I couldn't shake these people from my mind and I would wake up in the middle of the night and think, oh, I've just got to get out of bed and get on my knees and pray for these people because I don't know what else I can do. So, the last straw, I think, came for me when I saw a photo of a baby that had been beheaded by ISIS, and I was just so heartbroken. I just reached that point where I said to God, you know what, I don't know what I've got to give. I mean, I feel completely helpless. I'm a stay-at-home mum, I've got no income, I've got two small children, I'm here in the UK. What on earth could I possibly do to help these people? I feel like I've got nothing to give, but if there's anything that I can do, anything at all, I don't care what it is, just use me as you see fit, I'll do it. Just tell me what to do, I'll do it. And he said, start collecting. <laughs> so starting to catch on now, I thought, that's what I need to do. So um, basically, uh, at that point, I, there were a couple of things going on. First, it was the middle of August. Um, these people were dying in the mountains of dehydration and sun exposure. And this conversation that I'd had with God, it had always been about winter clothes and shoes. And um, I just felt he showed me in the time it takes you to collect all this stuff and get it out there, then maybe arrive at the right time. And um, I also felt in that moment, he made me this promise. And he promised me that if I was willing to trust him and step out in faith and start collecting, and he'd provide everything that was needed along the way. He promised me he would open all the right doors at all the right times and provide everything that was needed. And um, so I did, I stepped out in faith, and um, I honestly, to be, to be fair, I have absolutely no idea what I was doing. I put together sort of a project plan of how I thought it ought to fit together. Six weeks to collect everything and you know get as many people to donate clothes as possible, and then two weeks at the end of sorting and packing, and then I had a date in my mind by which I wanted this lorry to leave. So we started out with this vision to fill one lorry. It started with just an email to the mums in my son's year group at school and it kind of grew from there. And there were a lot of things involved. We had to raise six and a half thousand pounds to pay for one of these lorries. We had to fill one of these lorries. We had to find where I was sending it because still at that point I had no idea and I was praying and praying about it. And I remember weeks into it actually when we'd, we'd run far off filling the lorry, 
Um, and someone was saying to me about fundraising, so, oh, you know, um, it would really help if we knew where this was going, because then we, it might be easier to raise the money. I remember saying, I know, I know, I'm totally out of my comfort zone too. Um, and I remember one day just saying to God, standing in my kitchen, saying, God, you promised that you would open all of our doors and provide everything that was needed. You can hear what everyone's saying. You know, I need to know where we're sending this. I need a partner to work with. I, I would say that just prior to this, I'd emailed more than 45 different organisations working in the area and run as many people as I could, and they all just said, no, I'm really sorry, no, we can't help you. And, and I'd got to that point of desperation where I was, at least on a spiritual level, on my knees, saying to God, I can't do this, I've tried everything, I need your help because I can't make this happen on my own. I remember standing there in my kitchen saying, God, you promised, you promised. And um, about half an hour later, I got an email from someone saying, oh, I hear you're still looking for someone to send this to. Well, I can put you in touch with the partner. We've been working with them for about 11 years, and they're a really great Christian organisation. And I thought, oh, hallelujah. Thank you, God. Um, and, you know, the, the, the process of filling that lorry, it was kind of interesting because... Um, I had this idea in my mind, and I remember talking to Archie, my vicar, about it, and he said, yep, smile, we'll get behind you, we'll support you. Um, and, you know, they'd agreed to pay two and a half thousand of the costs, and I managed to get another organisation, that was another miracle, um, getting in touch with them, they'd say they would pay two and a half, and we'd planned lots of little fundraisers, and I, I reckon we'd raised the extra one and a half from that. Um, there were two sizes of lorry, we could have 35 cubic metres or one that carries 90 cubic metres and I remember in a very blasé way saying to Archie, you know, we serve a big god, don't we? We should go for a big one, but he wouldn't want us to fill a small one, would he? We should go for a big one. And then I remember after four weeks of collecting, moving all the boxes that we you know, lovingly sorted out um, into this storage unit that we'd been donated, um, and 90 cubic metres full of these, I, I, I suddenly took stock and I pushed my boxes into the corners and realised that with just two weeks until our deadline, we had somewhere between one and two cubic metres <laughs> of clothing. And I stood there and honestly, my heart just sank. And I, I'd been, I mean, literally every waking moment and actually many moments that I probably should have been asleep but was actually awake was dedicated to filling this lorry at that time. And I had told everyone that I'd ever met in my life that I was doing this and could they please help and could they donate their clothes and everyone knew what I was doing and I just remember standing in that room and thinking what am I going to do? <laughs> you ever get those moments where you just feel totally and utterly mortified about something? I, I haven't had many of those in my life but that, that was right there at the top and um, I remember standing there thinking what am I going to tell Archie? <laughs> what am I going to tell the other organisation? What am I going to do? I mean, really, this is completely impossible. I haven't got any hope whatsoever of filling this room in two weeks' time. You know, this is the total of four weeks' worth of collecting, and I've got maybe between one and two cubic metres. And I stood there and I just thought, what do I do? What do I do? I don't know. Um, so with little miles on one hip and my hand on the boxes, I said, Lord, I need a miracle. <laughs> and um, I just remember saying to him, you know, you can feed 5,000 with two fish and five loaves of bread. Mm. And would you please just fill this room? I mean, yes, I was feeling mortified, but not for my sake, God, but for these poor, poor people who have got nothing. And um, I remember walking away thinking, how am I going to fill this lorry? I need to fill it somehow. What can I? I've, I've just asked for clothes, shoes, and blankets. Those are the things that I thought were most important. And I started thinking, okay, what else can I? What else can I add to the list to bulk it out? I mean, duvets, they're a bit more puffy, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> the blankets, pillows, 
they're good, they'll definitely need pillows and they, they take up quite a bit of space. Um, well, I, I went through, I went through, I set things list of what do refugees need and I put together this list and I added loads and loads of stuff. I made the fatal mistake of putting cuddly toys on there. Big mistake, don't ever ask for those because you'll be, you'll be drowning them. Um, anyway, um, it was amazing um, what happened in that two weeks um, because I felt like, you know that passage in the Bible where the disciples are fishing all night and they catch nothing and then they, um, they come back in and Jesus said to them, oh, don't, don't cast your nets out over there and they say, well, we've been out there all night, but you say so. And I felt like those disciples must have felt um, in that two weeks because in those two weeks... <coughs> It was like we caught so much fish that our nets were breaking. I mean, it was it literally floor to ceiling in my house. Uh, our lounge was floor to ceiling with boxes. The spare room was floor to ceiling with bags, um, boxes that were half sorted and packed. And my husband was sort of climbing over the boxes to get to the TV in the evening. And there were strangers turning up at all hours of the day and night saying, oh, I'm here to help sort and pack. And then there was another room just like that at the storage unit. And I had to ask them for another storage unit because we couldn't sort and pack everything and store the ready packed boxes and it was bonkers to be honest um, but it was amazing because we sent off that lorry two and a half weeks early we raised an extra thousand pounds and we had a whole room full of stuff left over at the end and that is God's provision and um, yeah it, it, it's, it's amazing but the really funny thing I always love God's sense of humour because the room full of stuff left over it was all that stuff I added to the list in my moment of lacking faith it was all that stuff and I remember staring at it for a couple of weeks saying okay yeah alright I give in yeah, yeah you're in control um, so anyway it was it was good and it was special and when I sent it off we, play, we prayed in our home group um, a couple of days later um, because God had multiplied the first lot we said Lord you know there are hundreds of thousands of people in need and our lorry, our little lorry is just a drop in the ocean um, you know these people are sheltering in unfinished buildings and tents and by the time we sent this lorry there were, the, the camps were being flooded with rains, they were just quagmire, mud pits, I mean it was hideous um, anyway uh, we prayed, we prayed for another miracle and we said you know Lord would you multiply this further you know and I don't know about you but when I ask God for a miracle, I always have this little sort of preconceived idea in my mind of what that miracle ought to look like or how I would do it if I was God. And um, so, you know, I just kind of imagine that sort of scenario with feeding the 5,000. I don't know, there's just this extra food appearing. That's kind of how I envisaged it would be. You know, there would just be all these boxes and maybe there'll be more. But, you know, it's amazing because God has answered that miracle. He, he has provided that miracle, but he didn't do it over there. He did it here in the UK. Um, when we sent off that first lorry, um, I knew that I couldn't stop, but I also knew that I had asked so much of my friends and family during that time, I'd asked for such a big commitment from everyone, that while I was willing to do it all over again, I couldn't ask them to do it all over again because they, they wouldn't be. Um, and so I said to them, what do I do? Because there's more, clearly there's more, we need to do more, but um, I don't know, I can't ask what I've asked of everyone again. And I said, what do I do? And I just, he gave me this vision of lots of churches across the UK doing what I had done, but on a smaller, more manageable scale, each one does what they can manage, what's manageable for them. And then we'll have a week, delivery week, where, where people just, all the churches and people who've collected just bring their boxes, ready, sorted, packed and labelled. I'd give them the instructions, this is how we do it, this is what we send, this is what we don't send. Um, and they bring them all in. So I set up um, with this appeal to, to, to do a, a second lorry. 
And you know, since then, we've, it's been just over two years, it's been just over two years, and next weekend, container 60 and 61 are being loaded, and that's God's provision. He's provided that multiplication miracle, but he's done it here, and I really believe that he has done that because he wants us to be part of that process. You know, he wants us to have a way to give. He wants us to have an opportunity to be part of his kingdom. Um, it's not just about what people out there see, it's about us. And, you know, I have people ringing me sometimes. I remember certainly in the early days, I have people ringing me, sometimes in tears, just so grateful to have an opportunity to give and a way to help these people. Um, and I'm sure that, you know, from the work that you've already done here, um, I'm sure that you, you feel that sense of connection with the people that we're helping through giving in such a personal way. And, you know, you sit there and you pack these clothes and you look at this little baby snowsuit and think, you know, that might actually save someone's child's life this winter. You know, because children die in these camps and unfinished buildings. You know, it's, it gets as cold out there as it does here, even colder in some of the higher altitude areas. Last year they had snow in, um, in Dehuk in one of the areas, well, in quite a few parts of Iraq. And it's, um, it's been an amazing journey. Anyway, earlier this year, um, well, just over a year ago, I started to send out medical aid as well. Um, started to send the first ambulance, uh, we sent 11 ambulances. And then, um, you know, I've been working with our doctor out there and, um, you know, we were talking and talking. And then uh, one day he said, tomorrow, why don't we open a hospital? And I just thought, oh gosh, that sounds big, that sounds pretty scary. And um, anyway, it's funny, I've been praying at the time. I've been saying to God, you know, there's more. We need to be doing more for these people. Clothes are not enough. They need them, but they need more. And I want to do more. And, and I've been praying and asking God for the next step. And um, whilst at first, my first reaction was to be slightly terrified at the thought of opening a hospital. <laughs> um, the second time he said it, a couple of days later, I thought, yeah, that's it, that's God's answer. Um, so we set about opening the hospital, and it's amazing, actually. We had enough money left over at the end of the last winter appeal uh, to buy all the equipment that we needed to open that hospital. And we took an old abandoned house. It was an area that had been taken by ISIS. <coughs> all the hospitals there had been destroyed. Um, and, um, yeah, we decided... It, that, that's the place that we need to do it. There are people living there, there are people in great need, um, and basically the people living around that area would have to travel three hours to reach a hospital. You know, if you're talking about medical emergencies, a lot of people are going to die during that time. Um, so we started work, and you know, just this year we've opened three hospitals, and we've now got plans to open and funding to open a fourth. Um, it's been an incredible journey. Um, it's been a really incredible journey. And um, I just feel it's such a privilege to have something to give and a way of giving. You know, the work that we're doing, it's, um, it's like a jigsaw puzzle. I always say it's like a jigsaw puzzle. And each one of us is a tiny little part in that. We each play our tiny little part. Um, but when you put it all together, it makes up a much, much bigger picture. Um, I mean, I don't know even now the exact figures, I haven't totted it up again, including the stuff from this appeal, but we've, we've clothed over 150,000 people in the last couple of years. Um, you know, in that, that first hospital, that sees more than 1,000 patients every month. Um, I'm sure that you've seen plenty on the news about Syria um, 
and yet it doesn't even show you a fraction of what's really going on there and of how tough things are. Um, and I'll just tell you one or two of the stories of, of people um, that we've helped through our hospitals um, recently. There was um, the first hospital we opened within maybe about a month of it opening. Um, a man was brought in with gunshot wounds to his abdomen and there was another one man brought in with gunshot wounds to his chest but unfortunately he died on the way and um, it had taken them an hour and a half to get to our hospital but if it hadn't been there it would have taken four and a half hours to get to the next nearest emergency department and um, I've got video footage of this man's operation actually our team operated on him for four and a half hours he had a blood transfusion and um, his heart rate was so fast because he'd lost so much blood if he had had to go another three hours he would not have survived but as it was, he was discharged a couple of days later. Um, he has a wife and two children. Um, and unfortunately, the death toll is now so high in Syria. There are so, so many people that have been orphaned and widowed in this conflict. And, you know, I, I don't need to stand here and tell anyone why it's important for us to save a life. I mean, clearly, that's, you know, that, that goes without saying, you know, caring for the sick. But, um, you know, in Syria, it also has a slightly different um, set of consequences too, because you know, for someone to lose their father here, you know, that's really devastating. You know, it's an enormous emotional trauma. But in Syria, um, you know, there's another kind of set of implications as well. Um, you know, society's broken down so much there. There's not an effective police force anymore. Um, Widows with small children are very much prey of, of gangs, there are a lot of gangs operating there now and if they don't have any way of supporting themselves and they very quickly start to become victims of these people who will take advantage of them and um, so I almost wonder whether I should be telling these stories with little children running around but um, one of our doctors was caring for, um, he was working in the emergency department um, in a hospital that's around a very very tough area in Syria. Um, a 13 year old girl came in, uh, she was on her own, um, she had horrific injuries to her thighs and uh, bruises and injuries and scars from previous injuries and she was on her own and um, she didn't want to talk about what happened which you can understand but after some time she she did open up and she, she told them what happened you know, before the war, her father had been a teacher and um, he was killed and it got harder and harder for her mother to, um, to, to keep going and to make ends meet and so um, it was just a matter of time she started to get involved with people that were asking more and more of her and um, after a while um, the mother went to the daughter and said I'm so sorry but I, I need your help and um, this is the reality of life in Syria for people. Um, this is how people now are having to, to get by. I mean, three quarters of the population of Syria are now living in poverty. Um, you know, ordinary unskilled men have to work for 12 hours a day just to provide enough food and their children are still mal malnourished. Um, I just shared something on my Facebook page a couple of days ago. Um, this little boy with pneumonia, you know, they can't afford fuel to keep warm in the winter. And it's, it's tough. Life is very tough. And these people, they have no one else to turn to. Uh, I was talking to our doctor a, a while ago. He said, in Syria, all people have is God. They have no one else to trust. They have no one else to ask. All they can do is ask God. They have no one else to rely on. And so... Um, <coughs> 
think it's up to us as God's people to answer that call. And you know, the hospitals that we've opened are a real symbol of hope in their communities. Um, Emmanuel Hospital, the second one that we opened, um, when we were getting ready to open it, um, you know, there were there were loads of people who turned out from the local community, um, volunteers, um, elderly women, you know, children. They were all turning up to help paint and do do their stuff to, to, to help make this hospital happen. They were so excited about it. Um, that particular part of Syria, there's not as much fighting there. Um, they're maybe about an hour, an hour and a half away from the nearest hospital, but there's a really dangerous road. A lot of the roads in Syria are very dangerous and they'll be taken over by armed groups. Um, and it means that no emergency services would go out to that area, um, you know, certainly after dark. Um, and, you know, he said, I can overhear people saying, um, now we're not going to die if we get sick at night now. You know, just there's something as simple as a hospital um, it just makes an enormous difference um, it's a real symbol of hope for these people and um, I just feel it's our call it's our call um, you know, we, we look at these things that we see going on in the world and we feel compassion um, and ultimately that's our call to action um, you, know, there's, you can look at what's going on and feel disheartened and feel what can I do and I think that um, I saw one of these quotes a while ago and it said, you don't have to see the whole staircase to take the first step. And when I set out to fill this first lorry, I certainly didn't see, <laughs> certainly didn't see the future. Um, I could never have believed that we would be here now. Um, you know, one lorry was my vision back then. Um, and God has been gracious and he's been compassionate and he has provided and it's been been an incredible journey. Um, so just in terms of what you're going to hopefully be doing here in the next couple of weeks, collecting clothes and relief items, um, these are going to be going out to Iraq and Syria. Um, inside Iraq there are about just over 3.3 million internally displaced people, so they're essentially refugees in their own country. In Syria there are 6.5 million internally displaced people. Some of them have been displaced many times now, actually even in Iraq as well. And some of them have been displaced four or five times. Our doctor, our lead doctor in Syria, has been replaced a number of times. Um, in the earlier part of the conflict, one day he got a phone call. His wife had gone for a couple of days to stay with her parents. He was working away from home, got a phone call from someone saying, I'm sorry, we've taken your house, we need it. And he said, oh, well, look, my clothes are there. And he, he said, well, if you come back, we can't guarantee your life. Um, and this, this is um, this reality for many, many people, just ordinary people, this is an ordinary doctor, he's not in any, involved in any politics or anything like that, just an ordinary guy. Um, and people are sheltering in all sorts of places, abandoned buildings, unfinished buildings, camps. Often, sometimes a community may have just op literally opened the doors of their homes to let people in um, and come and shelter with them. Often, those are the poorest people. Um, you know, I, there's, there's this one quote that I read a few years ago. Um, I actually know it's a story. I was, um, I'm nearly finished now. <laughs> but um, I, I read this book by Mother Teresa, and it was, um, it was a story she told. Um, and um, she said that one day she was working in this particular area, and there was a family that was starving, and so she took a bowl of rice. Um, and she said the first thing the woman did was to scoop half of it out and put it in another bowl. Um, and then she disappeared out of the front door with it. Um, and when she came back, the woman said uh, to Mother Teresa, said, how, 
sorry, I'm just curious, what, what did you do with that rice? And she said, well, our neighbours are starving too, so, you know, I've, I've given some to them. And, you know, afterwards she said, you know, the rich give out of their excess, but the poor give out of their need. And I, I think you see that in Syria and you see that in Iraq. You see people who are too poor to have anything to share, and yet they are sharing. And I just feel that maybe we can help lift a little bit of that burden for them. And, you know, some of those people who are currently sharing what they've got, they're in need too. Actually, sometimes when a lot of refugees and displaced people arrive in one area, it puts an enormous strain on the host community too. And poverty levels increase, the price of commodities go up, the price of food goes up, the price of fuel goes up, all of these sorts of things. So anyway, we're, we're now looking to um, collect up lots of clothes, shoes, warm items, there's relief items, the, those pretty boxes, those are the care packs, um, there's like a shopping list of items, a bit like the shoe box schemes that a lot of schools do at Christmas, but this is focused on specific needs that maybe a woman that's just had a baby or uh, a woman that's been taken by ISIS and has managed to get away uh, might need. So. Um, I'm going to thank you in advance for everything that you're going to do. Um, it's a real blessing uh, to be able to, to share it with you and to be part of it with you. Um, and I think that's probably about it actually, but thank you ever so much. You've been so lovely and it's really, really a great privilege to be here with you this morning, so thank you.
uh, and also we want to give generously to, uh, to Samara's aid. It costs about £7,000 to send a lorry out to Syria. Um, those are the lorries to Iraq. Um, oh, for Syria it's about 4000 but then there's a few other, other, other costs at the other end. Okay, okay. so we, we want to be generous as a church and uh, we want to fund or help fund this lorry that's going to take, um, take these items. These immaculate items out to, out to the Middle East. So, um, what we're going to do, the worship band are going to come back, we're going to sing, the offering baskets are going to come round. Uh, please, please uh, place any, any money you can in, in the offering envelopes. Uh, and if you can fill out the gift aid at the back, it means we get some more money from the government that we can give and uh, be generous to. Yes, sir?